and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. My co-host, Joe Weisenthal, couldn't make it today. So I'm looking at a chart of the S&P 500, and let's see, it's almost exactly one year post the big dip in the S&P 500, the massive crash that we saw back in March of 2020. And of course, we've seen risk assets come roaring back. But with the recovery in financial assets, we have a lot of questions over how long can this continue? Are we on the verge of some sort of big change in the market as central banks unleash fiscal stimulus and interest rates remain at or close to the zero bound? Are we going to get inflation? Are we going to get stagflation? Are we going to see perhaps even deflation? Is there any way we're ever going to get out of this regime of low inflation. And I think whenever we have these big turning points in markets or when we have lots of people talking about the potential for big turning points in markets, we also have a a lot of opinions on how those are going to go and what type of portfolio would perform best. And of course, we've seen a lot of hand-wringing recently around growth versus value, 60-40, what happens when both bonds and stocks fall at the same time. So on today's show, we're going to be discussing exactly this idea. How do you build a portfolio that can withstand these regime changes and basically outperform over a really long time horizon? And I'm excited to say our guest for this episode is Chris Cole, the founder of Artemis Capital. He's appeared on Odd Lots previously, digging deep into the low volatility regime of the past year's It's great to have him back. He publishes some excellent research. Chris, thanks for coming on the show again. Thanks, Tracy. It's great to be back on the show. So uh, I guess my first question is, you know, the reason we're having this discussion is you published a paper called The Allegory of the Hawk and Serpent, How to Grow and Protect Wealth for 100 Years. Now, most investors aren't really looking at their portfolios on a hundred year basis. Uh, what sparked your interest in that kind of time frame? Well, what's really interesting about, in particular, the last 40 years is that there's a tremendous recency bias that market participants have. The last 40 years are incredibly unusual, comparative to uh, overall history. and. I believe, as I make the case in the paper, that recency bias is is now a systemic risk. 91% of the price appreciation for a classic 60-40 portfolio over the last 93 years has come from just the 22 years between 1984 to 2007. So what we've had is this incredible outperformance of both stocks and bonds that has been from a reinforcing cycle, and we use the allegory of the serpent for that. And that's been led by falling interest rates. Rates fell from 17% to 0%. There's been incredible favorable demographics as baby boomers have come into the workforce. Falling taxes, taxes have fallen to near 100-year lows. Globalization, unprecedented monetary policy. And we now have some of the highest levels of both government and corporate debt in American history. So as a result of this, there's been this incredible outperformance of stocks and bonds over the last 40 years. The trillion dollar question that I think is important for any allocator is, is this repeatable? And 
I actually believe that the factors that drove this generational boom in stocks and bonds are, are now reversing. We're now in a framework where debt's at all-time highs. Uh, the middle class hasn't seen real wage growth uh, since the 1970s. And uh, demographics are really poor and interest rates can't go any lower. So investors expecting the gains in the last 40 years are likely to be extremely disappointed. And so to kind of understand what the next 20 years are going to look like and how to build a portfolio that will last um, and can manage through this period of secular change, what I did is I went back through history and I recreated all of these financial engineering strategies uh, using, I think, defensible assumptions over the last 93 years. And we know that you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And my, my goal was to figure out what portfolio can consistently perform to every market cycle, whether it's secular growth, whether it's inflation, whether it's deflation. And I think I came up with some really interesting answers in my paper last year in the follow-up paper that I just released that uh, really answers the questions as to what type of portfolio really sustains wealth and uh, capital appreciation and limits drawdowns. And the answer that I got is radically different from the type of portfolio that many institutions and retail investors are currently, are currently uh, allocating to. I have so many questions already, but uh, one that jumps out at me is going back 100 years and trying to reconstruct modern portfolios against financial assets in the 1920s and 1930s. Like, how exactly did you do that? Because um, I'm, I'm looking at the paper and you, know, you look at things like naked call selling, uh, how that performed during the Great Depression. I, I'm just curious how you recreated uh, those portfolios? Absolutely. It's, a, it's an incredible question. And I think one of, the, one of the things that I think is very important to understand about, about this exercise is that we, we don't necessarily say that these portfolios are realized performance, but they're a best effort at understanding how a given financial uh, engineering strategy might have performed in the past. And I think there's a lot of defensible assumptions. You know, first of all, we start with a wealth of observable data. There is data that we can gather uh, from history, namely the uh, composite S&P 500 prices from stock data, the top 500 companies at any given point in time. There's obviously gold data, interest rate data. There's data on commodities. And that, that's a starting point. Um, and we use that data from the global financial database. From there, what we can do is we can construct some uh, and replicate some basic strategies like risk parity, volatility targeting, 60-40 uh, portfolios. Those are relatively easy to replicate using that, that kind of base level data. Now, Artemis is a long volatility trading shop. We, what we do is we, we provide uh, volatility, long volatility and defensive solutions for our investors. So one of the most type of popular strategies that has been employed by many institutions are volatility overriding strategies, uh, either for income or defensive purposes. And what we wanted to do is to test these going back uh, 93 years. Of course, how do you test a volatility strategy prior to the existence of the options market? That's, that's not necessarily something that's easy to do. So obviously, you have to make some assumptions, and it becomes a bit of an intellectual exercise. But I think the assumptions are very defensible if one understands them. What we first did is we, we took options data that exists from 1990 to the present. We're able to solve for a volatility surface. A volatility surface describes the pricing of volatility 
at various out-of-the-money points, uh, both for calls and puts. So that's the realized data, the real data that we have. Now, we don't have that data going back, obviously, in the 1930s or the 1970s, but we do have data on how equity markets perform. We can calculate, for example, realized volatility on 10, 30, 60-day timeframes. We can calculate the rolling performance and max drawdowns of equity markets over those times. So those are observable inputs. So using our arbitrage SBI vol surface that we solve for from real data, we then were able to run a multi-variable multi regression to actually look at the last 20, 30 years and fit a volatility surface based on observable market data. And then what we did is we used that fitted data to, in essence, run various option trading strategies uh, using a theoretical volatility fit. And then we looked and compared that to some of the most popular SIBO vol indices, like the buy right index and the put right index. And what we were able to do is we were able to replicate those indices using our theoretical volatility indications to generally over a uh, 0.85 correlation and almost exacting performance. So from there, what we're able to do, now that we have this kind of in-sample history, we were then able to apply that methodology to create a theoretical uh, volatility, implied volatility service going all the way back to 1928. Now, there are limitations in this because what you're us naturally assuming is that the way market participants price volatility over the last 20, 30 years would be very similar, uh, would, would be similar to the way they would price it in the 30s and the 70s and the 50s. Now, we don't know that for certain, right? We, we don't, but we're willing to make that assumption to, in essence, give, give ourselves a, a fairly realistic assessment on how strategies like uh, put writing or strategies like naked call selling would perform during those time periods. And we receive some very interesting results that really give allocators a, a sense on how these strategies would perform outside of the incredible regime of the last 40 years. Hmm. So you replicate the volatility performance from, you know, over 100 years ago or 93 years ago, as you mentioned, you find that a technique that a lot of investors who ha have been using in recent years to pump up returns, um, again, going short volatility, doesn't perform as well or hasn't performed as well way back then. Like, why exactly did that happen? What were the market conditions in place that you think uh, allowed for the underperformance of shortfall? Well, you know, I, obviously, over the many years, I've been a critic of short volatility and that strategy. And I also believe that long volatility is one of the one of the most underallocated assets that is out there today. And and I think this paper and some more analysis that that we provided gives support to that. So I think saying short volatility strategies, and what I mean by that, these are strategies that sell put options, or maybe they they sell call options. Uh, it might be call overwriting, buy right programs. These are strategies that that institutions have employed 
in many ways to generate excess yield. Over the last 40 years, they performed exceptionally well, largely because we've been in an environment that has emphasized stability. Every single time equity markets draw down, central banks are able to respond. And that has produced an extremely mean reverting environment. That's not always been the case. And let me kind of explain why. Let's look at a period like the 1930s. Over the entire decade of the 1930s, volatility realized at about 40%. That's incredible. So, you know, vol was realizing 40% in 2008. Imagine 2008 for an entire decade. <laughs> Obviously, that does terrible things to a portfolio that's continuously selling optionality. But one of the surprise takeaways, and I think people would, would appreciate appreciate this after the last year, you know, my original paper came out before the COVID crisis, and in many ways kind of predicted a lot of the problems that were experienced in the COVID crisis uh, and, the, and the reflation afterwards. Well, naked call selling was among the worst strategies that we looked at. You would think naked put selling would be, or put, put writing would be the worst strategy. Naked call selling was terrible. Why was naked call selling so bad? Well, if we go back to the Great Depression, you had these incredible drawdowns in equity markets. Central banks responded either by cutting rates, by implementing programs, or by devaluing gold. And you had equally insane rallies in the market that were as violent as the drawdowns. So that that's something I think that's so important for people to understand and really was foreshadowing the, we had this huge drop in March, 2020. We had this big explosion in April. Well, if we look at the Great Depression, you know, after a brutal three-year decline of 80%, the market rallied 72% in just 1.5 months in 1932. And that was after the signing of the Banking Act. In 1933, the market had an 88% rebound in just 4.5 months after Roosevelt devalued the dollar. So you have these violent rallies that occur during these periods of deflationary crises. And if you're selling call options into those violent rallies, you can clearly understand how bad that is. If you're doing covered call overriding, it's clear how bad that is. Another period that was really violent was the 1970s, where you had this kind of right tail skew realization. Now, what, what does that mean? Prior to the devaluation of gold in 1971, markets, markets used to trend. Equity markets used to trend. They were autocorrelated. And what that meant is that if yesterday was up, today, was likely to be up, and the next day was likely to be up. So we reached this kind of secular peak in trending of equity markets in the 1970s. And after the devaluation of gold, which empowered central banks to be reactive, we began a multi-decade period where mean reversion ruled. And last year represented the highest peak in mean reversion. Another way of saying that is negative autocorrelation, but really it's like if yesterday was up, today was likely to be down and vice versa. The 
mean reversion in markets reached all-time highs in over 100 years of history. In trending markets, that's really bad for short vol selling strategies because volatility is comprised of, well, naturally vol, you have the vega, that's the volatility, but there's another component to options, which is the gamma. And another way of saying gamma is the trend. So in, for the greater part of 70 years, option buyers would have profited from trend. But over the last 40 years, mean reversion has ruled. And uh, that's largely be, been connected to the decline in interest rates and the proactivity of central banks. So that's another reason why some of these short volatility strategies dramatically underperformed and were incredible. Uh, I mean, not only underperformed, I mean, resulted in complete and cataclysmic loss of capital for about 70 years. I'd love to get your take on how the volatility strategies actually performed last year, like in March of 2020, and whether or not we've seen them build back up in the months since, because I think that might help us get a sense of like the direction that we're going in now. There's a question as to what portfolio is most robust, and how do you build a robust portfolio? And one of the conclusions that we had uh, doing this 90-year study of history was that to, to achieve a portfolio that is optimal, what investors should do is that they should prioritize long-term uh, correlations between asset classes over excess returns. And so we devised a portfolio that's radically different than what many institutional portfolios have, that what this portfolio does is it diversifies assets based on market regimes. And by market regime, I mean regimes like inflation, deflation, and growth. It diversifies assets based on market regime rather than asset classes. So 60-40 is an asset class diversification tool. Or the other diversification tool used by many investors is, is trailing volatility and correlations. That's what's used by strategies like risk parity. So the portfolio that we really recommended to perform consistently over, over 93 years is obviously about, about 20%, 20 to 25% uh, equity, about uh, 20% high quality bonds. And this is where it gets interesting. 20% approximately gold and precious metals. And I'll call that fiat alternatives. Some people might actually put crypto in that today. Obviously, you can't test crypto going back. 20% trend and momentum strategies. These would be managed future strategies that profit off trends in commodities or currencies. And then finally, 20% long volatility in defensive hedging. What ends up happening in these different asset classes, obviously, obviously uh, equities perform during periods of secular growth. Fixed income performs during periods of relatively stable inflation and, uh, and, and deflation. But you have a limit on fixed income at the zero bound, obviously. And that, that, that's occurred in the history before. It happened kind of in the 1930s. Now, long volatility and trend and momentum perform in periods of deflation, tremendous deflation and tremendous inflation. So deflation like the 30s, inflation like the 70s. And obviously, fiat alternatives like precious metal 
perform in periods like the 1970s, where you have tremendous stagflation and negative real rates. So you have, you're diversifying based on these market regimes. Now, we published this paper at the beginning of last year. We didn't have the opportunity to see in the future about what would happen throughout 2020. I released a new paper that talked about how this recommended portfolio performed through 2020. It was exceptional performance. Because as you know, 2020 was like an entire business cycle condensed into 12 months. The whole business cycle from January to March, that was like a 1930s deflation. Then from April to about August, we had this incredible fiat devaluation with $10 trillion in global stimulus and this speculative asset growth. That's, that's uh, you know, sim- almost kind of similar to kind of a 1999 type of scenario. As we entered the, uh, the wintertime, we went into a reflationary scenario that began to resemble kind of the onset of stagflation in the late 60s. I mean, that's where you have uh, struggles in interest rates, interest rates begin to rise at perform, but then you have this expectation of a re-steepening of the yield curve and commodities began to perform. I mean, lumber reached all-time highs, copper was exploding. So if we look at how this portfolio that we call the dragon portfolio performed, in that deflationary period, in the first part of the year, well, long volatility strategies were the huge winners they actually uh, were able to fill the gap where equities drew down. So actually, for this portfolio, that first quarter gained about 13%, where 60-40 portfolios and risk parity portfolios had huge underperformance because they were over-reliant on bonds as their defensive protection. So long volatility strategies did so well and protected and helped you make money during that quarter. Then during the the fiat devaluation and the kind of growth period after central banks stepped in, gold took its turn performing in the summer, along with definitely crypto and other assets like that. And then we had a huge outperformance in equities. Then by the fall, we began to see gold begin to sell off, and we began to see equities continue their upward trajectory. Fixed income began to sell off, But trending commodities, managed futures began to outperform, profiting from the trends in commodities markets and the trends in these other asset classes. So we had an entire business cycle condensed into 12 months. And at each point, these asset, these market regime diversification benefits of the portfolio became really clear. And this concept of this dragon portfolio that we introduced would have returned close to 50% last year, where the 60-40 portfolio and risk parity portfolios only returned about 15% on average, with over three times the max drawdown. For people who read our paper, this should not be a surprise. It should not be a surprise because we saw this happen in previous market cycles, but you have to look at the periods outside the last 40 years to understand that. So I get the contention that if you're building a portfolio that's going to outperform in these big regime changes, then in 2020, when you basically had a compressed business cycle, as you mentioned, it would do phenomenally well. But 
Most people would agree that 2020 was an extremely unusual year. And I think most investment professionals are probably more used to trying to pinpoint the regime changes as they come rather than build a portfolio that's going to outperform all types of regimes for 100 years, right? Like their outlook is always going to be, you know, 10, 20, maybe 30 or 40 years, but it's going to be much, much shorter than what you're talking about. So I guess my question is like, how useful is this for your average financial advisor or investor? And how do you encourage people to think on a longer term horizon or think about diversification across regime changes rather than just trying to pinpoint when uh, a particular change is taking place in markets? Yeah, I, I think one of the one of the phrases that we say is do not fear, do not predict, prepare. So if you are able to perfectly time and predict the regime changes, and I tell you I can't, if, but if you're able to do that, you're Stanley Druckenmiller, you're George Soros, and you should be a billionaire, right? Um, the average retail investor, the average institutional investor is not able to necessarily time those changes perfectly. And even if they're able to do so, if you're managing a $50 billion portfolio, if you're an institution or a $10 billion uh, portfolio, if you're an institution, it's difficult to tilt the portfolio. You, you have to choose some portfolio allocation. And you know, my point is that the average pension fund in America is approximately 70% equity-linked investments and approximately 30% in kind of fixed income and alternatives and cash. What many of these institutions have done is they've crowded in to assets like private equity, kind of pretending that they're diversifiers. Uh, but if you look at some of the Cambridge studies, you know, private equity has tremendous correlation to the business cycle. It's not a diversifying asset by market regime. You know, they've jumped into VCs. It's the same thing. You, you jump into real estate. It's the same problem. These are all asset classes that are correlated to business cycles. They're long GDP asset classes that are correlated to one growth regime. Now, in the past, you could rely on fixed income to provide diversification, but when fixed income is at the zero bound, it fails to provide great diversification. And anyone who studies the 1930s would have seen that problem. When we recreated risk parity portfolios, which rely heavily on fixed income and lever the fixed income, uh, there's tremendous underperformance in the 1930s when rates were near the zero bound. So these institutions are assuming the last 40 years will repeat. And they're in essence levering equity linked, not levering, but they're they're relying on this expectation of equity-linked performance and these kind of false diversifiers to reach their 7.25% return targets. I think this is a huge mistake because if you remove the last 40 years, their performance is closer to 4 to 5% annualized, abysmal, you know, using the allocations that they have. So if they're not able to meet that 7.25% return target, you know, recency bias becomes a problem that all of us are going to pay for. And the reason being, there's about $1.4 trillion uh, US state and local pension deficit right now. And that's assuming that they are able to hit their return targets. If there's underperformance, um, as one would expect given current valuations and the current correlation mix of their investments, uh, you can expect that deficit to rise to anywhere between $3 trillion all the way to up to $9 trillion. So in the last stimulus bill, 
there was a lot of controversy over $85 billion in uh, bailouts for union pensions. And I'm not going to get into the politics on that. But if you can imagine that there's a lot of tension over $85 billion, what's going to happen when, when the government's going to need to step in and bail out PBOC and state and local pension systems to the tune of $3 trillion? It's a big problem. Recency bias is a big, big issue. The problem with many of these institutions is they bought into the sharp ratio myth. The sharp ratio, they look at these investments, be it private equity and these other investments, and they say, okay, what's the sharp ratio? We want to we put together all of these investments that have high sharp ratios. Well, the sharp ratio, if you go back and you read the original paper that William Sharp wrote, you know, Capital Asset Prices, that uh, was the paper they wrote when it was 30 years old in 1964, it's clear that a sharp ratio is not intended for components of the portfolio. The sharp ratio should only be used for the aggregated portfolio. You can't use a sharp ratio to, to make judgments on individual managers. Well, why? Why is that? Well, I, I, I like to use this analogy to sports. When you're looking at evaluating players to add to your favorite sports team, if you're a general manager, you want to add players that help you win. That's what you want. Well, we all know, whether your favorite sport's basketball or whether it's soccer, that there are players on mediocre to bad teams with gaudy statistics. And maybe they have really good scoring averages or, or goals averages, but they, their statistics are padded and they don't help their team win. And the reason is maybe they don't play good defense or maybe they dominate the ball. Maybe they have high turnovers, and uh, maybe they're not making hustle plays that help their team win. So as a result of that, sports management has gotten really smart about selecting players and advanced statistics that measure how a player helps the team win. These are things like wins over replacement value and plus minus ratios. Well, we have no metric for that in the investment industry. So what ends up happening is that these institutions buy into this myth of sharp ratios. And they keep layering on investments that have high sharp ratios. But what ends up happening is that when you, you can put together a bunch of investments that have high sharp ratios, but your portfolio will have lower risk-adjusted returns and higher drawdowns. It's really amazing. And the reason is, is that the sharp ratio doesn't take into account the skew or the extreme right or left tails of the investment. It doesn't take into the account the correlations of that investment versus the rest of your portfolio. So what happens here is that people have bought into this myth that layering on top these managers that have high sharp ratios will help them. It actually is hurting their portfolio. And likewise, just like in sports, there are some players with less impressive statistics. They may not look good on paper. They're sharp, they're, they're, their point averages might be lower, but they're doing things like playing fans. They're helping the team win. And that shows up in the advanced metrics. Is this the money ball theory for market investment? It is. It is. And we are working on a new paper that will develop. This will come out in the next couple of weeks that actually develops some of these advanced metrics for institutions. But my point being is that investments like long volatility, which don't look that good on paper, you know, they don't, they don't have great sharp ratios. But when you add them to your portfolio, they push your portfolio out on the efficient frontier and result in a better risk-adjusted return for your portfolio. Assets like gold, commodity trend advisors, 
and long volatility and defensive hedging, even though they don't look that great on a sharp ratio basis, you put them into the portfolio and they help your portfolio win. That's what you really care about. And that's what the average US pension institution and the average retail investor fails, I think, to fully comprehend. And this is so important because this sharp ratio problem is a social problem. Because if we don't fix this, we are all going to end up paying for it. So I, I really am passionate about this. I really believe this. I think the math proves this out. The history proves this out. And I think these are some of the most undervalued assets that one could put in the portfolio, even though they may not look that good on paper. We need to stop evaluating the player and we need to start evaluating the team. That, that's, how, that's the secret to building better portfolios. Right. So the idea is that the the whole of the portfolio can be stronger than the individual components, right? That's absolutely right. You know, in our paper, we talk about this idea where you, you, you can choose two assets. There are two assets that have high sharp ratios, but they're highly correlated with one another. There's another asset that has a negative sharp ratio, but it's anti-correlated. Actually, you'd rather put together the negative sharp ratio that's anti-correlated with the, with the one that that is a positive sharp ratio than the two sharp ratio, the two high sharp ratio investors investments together. That results in a better portfolio. And it, it's just mathematically true. But for some reason, we don't seem to see this. But sports, oddly, general managers like Daryl Morey and you know the uh, and the managers, the Warriors understand this this principle as applied to sports, even though we're lacking it in investment management. There's one other thing I wanted to ask you. Uh, you mentioned um, social value just then and this idea that it, if we're going to solve things like massive underfunding of pensions, then people should grasp this concept of building a sort of total portfolio versus just going after high returns in the short term. But there's one other thing that that kind of caught my interest in the paper where you talk about the potential for wealth distribution in some regimes. So this idea that um, you can get a backlash to a market crash. Uh, you can get sort of populist pressures on politicians that result in wealth redistribution, higher tax rates, things like that. And I think a lot of people would argue that maybe that's where we're heading now. How do you actually protect a portfolio from wealth redistribution? And what does uh, your dragon portfolio do it or perform in that scenario? Well, it's, it's a really interesting and complex question. And it really delves into uh, a detailed analysis on the individual components. So people have to realize that how this ties in the last 40 years, because it's not just been rates that have been going lower, but it's been taxes that have been going lower. So huge tax cuts starting in the 1980s. So that combination of low taxes, globalization, uh, lower and lower taxes, and lower interest rates has resulted in this huge buildup of debt and tremendous outperformance in, in, in equity-linked assets, private equity, and all these other long GDP assets, as we'll call them, because that's what they are. Well, as we move to an income redistribution type of world, that presents a heavy, heavy burden on equities, on real estate, on private equity. 
it's a, a big issue uh, for two reasons. First of all, you know, excessive regulation is going to cause problems in those asset classes. Obviously, if you're allocated 70% in those assets, that's, that's a huge issue. Um, the second driver is that, look, we have the highest fiscal deficits since World War II, and they're likely only, only to be going up. We have unprecedented monetary policy, and we have the highest levels of corporate debt in American history as a percentage to GDP. These are all true facts. So the problem with keeping interest rates so low is that it exacerbates the wealth divide. In addition to all of these extreme factors on excessive debt, we also have the highest income disparity in American history that is equaled only by the Great Depression, prior to the Great Depression. This puts tremendous political pressure. You can't just keep rates low and do the Japan experiment because you're going to have a social, a social explosion. And you know, I talked about this. Uh, in the New York Times, I gave an article back in 2017. That was prior to my Ouroboros paper where I talked about the blow-up in ball. And I said, well, you know, if the, if the Fed wants to suppress volatility indefinitely, well, that's something that you know, they, they can do that, but volatility can never be destroyed. It can only be transmuted in form and time. So if you're going to suppress asset price volatility using monetary policy, that volatility is going to come out in a different way, and that way is through social instability. And I said, hey, my, you know, my hedge fund, which seeks to protect against market crashes, you know, that's something I feel pretty confident about being able to protect against. But what you can never protect against is, is, is a social revolution. And I think we're starting to see the seeds of that. Of course, one of the ways that governments can stem that off is by fiscal stimulus, giving out money, but that's stagflationary. It's tremendously stagflationary. And so uh, I think that's the, that's the route that maybe is the path of least resistance, where you, know, you, have, you can destroy debt in two ways. You can default on the debt, or you can print money, and you can do tremendous stimulus, and you can inflate your way out of the debt. And we may be choosing the inflation route. Well, that's going to wreak havoc on the institutional portfolio, because People don't realize this. Equities, equities in the 70s were in a Great Depression on a real adjusted basis. So the drawdown on a real basis after inflation was, was as bad as the drawdown in the 1930s. But the reason that people didn't feel it that, that that was that bad was because we were inflating away the problems. Of course, that led to you know, rent control and all these other issues. So if we go the inflation, stagflation route, you're going to see equities destroyed on a real adjusted basis. And you're going to see bonds obviously destroyed because rates go up. Well, guess what performs that environment? If we go back to our dragon portfolio, well, at any point in the dragon portfolio has two out of the five thematic regime classes performing. So what performs really well in a stagflationary environment? Well, precious metals and gold you had a, an 800% price increase in gold. We'd presume that crypto would be part of that, um, but there's a lot of questions on crypto. The other thing that performs extremely well is commodity trend and trending, tr trending commodities. So the CTA sleep portfolio performs really well. So those are strategies that take into account momentum. And so we're seeing that this year, you know, where lumber prices are exploding to all-time highs, copper's up. You know, all of these commodities are trending tr tremendously higher. So in this sense, if you have 40% of your portfolio allocated to assets that can play off of the stagflation, you're going to be okay. You're going to do well. That'll make up for your suffering uh, stock and bond exposure. In addition, long volatility 
can make money in right tail events and stagflation as well. If we go into kind of a Japan environment, well, you know, that, that's a scenario where long volatility tends to outperform and you, know, you have stability in fixed income and you kind of have stable returns in, in, in equities. So I, I think you can't necessarily, it goes back to that idea, don't predict, prepare and, and thrive from change. And, and that's when we look at risk in terms of thematic baskets, Regardless of what regime you're in, at least two to three of the thematic baskets or market regime baskets are outperforming, and that saves your portfolio. And that, that way, you don't necessarily need to predict the winds of political change. All you need to do is to have a balanced allocation so you're prepared throughout any regime. I really stress that this is something that the investment allocation problem, the portfolio allocation problem, is a social problem. We have a window of opportunity. This is both on a pension systems, institutional investors, and for individual investors. There's a window of opportunity to create portfolios that are robust and are able to thrive through these different regimes. You know, my paper, The Allegory of the Hawk and Serpent, released last year in January, and the follow-up to that paper that chronicled how those ideas performed in 2020 that was just released, really make the case, and I think a, a very important case, that this is, this, is, this is vital if you want to profit and be able to survive periods of secular change. And this is not just an intellectual argument about portfolio construction. It is a social problem if we don't address this because the pension underfunding is going to get massive. And we are going to pay for that. Now, we could pay for it through government bailouts, or we could pay for it through loss of purchasing power uh, from inflation. But the asset allocation problem is a social problem. And I think institutions and retirees really need to strongly look at diversifiers that profit from left and right tail events and profit from trend. And those are asset classes, underlooked asset classes like long volatility, commodity trend, and precious metals and fiat alternatives. And those are just as important as equities in the portfolio. Uh, Chris, what's the name of the new paper? The new paper, which is available on our website, it's called Rise of the Dragon. I, I love these uh, metaphors and uh, visuals, um, but I, I really encourage people to do deep dives into the papers because I think there's a lot of quantitative analytics. Um, everyone read the first paper. People didn't actually, not a lot of people read the appendix, which was twice as long as the paper and contained much more detailed quantitative notes. Um, so, uh, you know, both of those papers are available on our website, www.artemiscm.com. And, uh, I occasionally tweet about these themes too. Oh yeah. I'll mention your handle at the end of this, but, uh, in the meantime, everyone has some, you know, light weekend reading in the form of a 20 page appendix from your paper. So <laughs> <laughs> that's right. A detailed 20 page appendix that talks about ball surface <laughs> And, uh, and risk parity replication to the 30s. <laughs> All right, Chris, it's lovely having you on as always. That was Chris Cole, the founder of Artemis Capital. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tracy. It was great to be back.
So I, I'm going to avoid recording a monologue here because I think it would be weird for me to talk to myself about what I found interesting in that conversation. But I do encourage you to take a look at Chris's paper. It's not very often that you get to see someone modeling volatility surfaces from the Great Depression. So whenever you get that chance, you should seize it. All right. This has been another episode of the Odd Thoughts podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. You can also follow our guest, Chris Cole. He is at vol underdash Christopher. And you should also follow all of the Bloomberg podcasts. You can find them on Twitter at podcast. You should definitely follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She is on Twitter at Laura M. Carlson. And you should follow Bloomberg's head of podcasts, Francesca Levy. She is at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening.